Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. think you can take Portland out of Oregon and understand Portland. And in fact, you know, as much as we talk about the urban-rural divide in Oregon, which is as true here as in any state, that cultural and economic uh, and geographic divide is so real in our nation. Corruption in government, we won't accept it. Social movements, the Black Lives Matter movement is not the first, right? That these conversations have been going on in our city for quite some time with regard to justice. I believe that the power to transform the future is in our hands. All right, folks, I will keep it brief this week. Alex is not here for the intro, but we had an exciting guest this week. We had Sarah Ianarone, a very well-known name in Portland circles. She's ran twice for mayor of Portland, and in 2020, she came very close to winning the election. She got in the low 40s. Mayor Ted Wheeler got in the high 40s, and a write-in candidate named Teresa Rayford split the difference. And a lot of folks speculate that if Rayford wasn't in the race, that Sarah Ianarone may have become mayor. So she's very prominent in the Portland political community. She's now the executive director of the Street Trust. And before that, she had a bunch of non-political jobs too, as we talk about. She worked as a chef. She worked as a small business owner. She's worked in academia and higher education and done a lot on urban policy, land use, planning, transportation policy, et cetera. So we talk about transportation policy in more depth in this episode than we have in previous, which I thought was really interesting and useful. Just a couple things I wanted to encourage folks to look out for in this episode. The first is she does an excellent job of explaining the political dynamics of Portland. She's got her own analysis that I think makes a lot of sense. A lot of folks not from Portland or who don't work in the Portland politics space, I think it's confusing to see a bunch of progressive Democrats who argue and disagree about a lot of different things. And Sarah did a great job of giving framework for understanding the actors and how and why they behave the way that they do. So that happens relatively quickly out of the gate. Then we talk about another answer to look for is her analysis for why she lost the race for mayor which I found enlightening and interesting. There's, you know, obviously 2020 was a a wild election. We mentioned that in the episode with Jimmy Crumpacker, but she's got some specific reasons about this race and these candidates that I think are interesting. And then of course we move to the policy space where there's a good back and good healthy dialogue between Sarah and Alex about competing visions on transportation policy, electric cars, you know, expanding highways or investing in other transportation infrastructure, how it all kind of fits together. So I hope it's useful for listeners to hear this episode. But we made it to January. We're in 2022. Congratulations on making it this far. Thanks for sticking with us on the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. We're also open to your suggestions, questions, etc. You can find us on the Oregon Way Substack where we have our weekly newsletters. If you're not subscribed to those, the liftoff comes out every Monday. It's everything you need to know about Oregon politics, campaigns, government, and elections. Uh, And then the way comes out on Fridays, and it's the most important op-ed pieces that you need to know about what leaders in Oregon are saying about the issues of the day. So highly recommend you subscribe to the newsletter and hit us up if you have any questions, suggestions, or anybody you want us to interview on the podcast. All right, let's jump in. All right, everyone. Welcome to the interview with Sarah Ianarone. First, Sarah, did I pronounce your last name correctly? You did. That's <laughs> exciting. It doesn't usually happen on the first go. So thank you very much for that. 
All right, we're off to a good start. So we're going to get into, you know, Portland mayoral campaigns and transportation policy and all things Portland. But before we do that, you did a bunch of stuff before you ran for mayor that was not super related to politics from what I read. So can you give us a brief overview of the, you know, pre-2016 version of your life? Obviously, it changed dramatically after that first campaign and, of course, the second campaign. But before we get there, what was life like before you were in the Portland city politics world? Oh, and boy, don't I sometimes wish I could go back to that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about that. Yeah. Once the can of worms is out, it's uh, Yeah, it's you cannot put that back in. So I grew up in a small working class town called Fulton, New York. My dad worked at the Nestle factory and when it uh, rained, it smelled like chocolate there. But that was just right on the cusp of the end of us being a manufacturing nation and moving toward this post-industrial society and all this urban restructuring that Portland's right at the center of now, right? So I didn't know what I was watching at the time as my friend's dads were losing their jobs at all the factories and whatnot. But that's where I came up. It was a small town. It was walkable. I rode my bike everywhere, like whenever I could. My mom would always have to, we didn't have cell phones then. I'm pretty old. So, you know, I'd always have to try and come home before it got too dark. But you know, that was my life. I was free and I had a great education growing up in New York State. The public schools were great. And I became a chef in my first career. Hmm. So I went to culinary school and then I ended up living in some really amazing food cities around the U.S. And I got to live in some really cool places too, like Charleston, South Carolina, and wow. even New Orleans, which when you think about tourist towns too, they have their own unique culture and economy, right? And what that means for livability for their inhabitants who are there year round. So again, I was learning a lot of lessons that I would carry forward with me as a service industry worker. Then I had a daughter when I moved to Portland. I came out here because I heard the buses were free and the trees were green and the coffee was strong and the music scene was really amazing. Again, I said I was old, but a lot of those things still hold. How long ago was that? What year was 1998. I came out here. Um, And a New Orleans resume from the food service industry went a long way in Portland's then burgeoning food scene. So I had my daughter not long after that. She's at University of Oregon, which I see, Ben, you're alone. She's a duck. You're a duck. (laughs) She's finishing up there this year. Um, She's in her last year of college at U of O and happy to be back post-COVID after having to do remote learning here with mom all of last year. It was kind of a drag especially with me looking over her shoulder. Um, How's your political science class going? If you need any help, mom's right here. Oh, no. Yeah, poli-sci, right? Are you kidding me? It's a regressive tax. So, (laughs) um, but uh, then I went back to Portland State. I got my undergrad and went straight into a PhD program there. And I'm still miserably ABD, which made news. I haven't defended my dissertation there yet, but I just went to study cities. Um, I have always been a lover of urban areas and uh, the promise that they hold for our species, right? But also the ecosystems that surround us. So when you think about Portland in particular, we have amazing nature right in our city. Uh, We have amazing nature right adjacent to our city. So in my time at Portland State, focusing on sustainable cities as my field area, I got a great job at an organization called First Stop Portland that was just emerging. It was a really innovative program at the time. It was housed in the university. It was partially funded with a Miller Family Foundation grant that they gave Portland State University about $25 million. They could become a global leader in sustainability education. It was, you know, 
there was a lot of green cities energy going into Portland's urban development and economic development and planning and policy at the time. And we worked with the nonprofit sector, higher education partners, and the business sector to host visiting delegations of civic leaders from around the world who had heard something special was going on in Portland and they wanted to find out what it was. And it was really by telling that story of Portland again and again, by introducing world leaders to each other, right? My sustainability director sitting at a table all day with the sustainability director of Amsterdam, Copenhagen, or Tokushima, Japan, I got a real insight into what was going on, not just in my city, but those cities as well. So that's really where I got most of my policy chops. Hmm. They say you learn more out of school than you learn in it. And that was certainly true for me. For sure. The way that I got into politics from that is my boss there was Nancy Hales, and she just happened to be married to our mayor at the time. Nancy is a formidable person in her own right. She had been in the Southwest Washington and Oregon philanthropic community for a long time, and she was a great project manager and program developer. And we just went out of the gates just running on that program and had a fantastic time. But, you know, I'd ride around in the car with them and hear them talking about the politics. And I'd say, well, why don't we do this? Or why don't we do that? And why don't we do this? And I thought, well, I have an idea for that. I have a solution for this. Oh, I know the folks in... I know the folks in the city who are doing that because it had been my job to introduce that innovator or that economist or that transportation planner or that BES engineer who engineered the bioswales, right? I knew what shop they were in. I knew who their supervisor was. And I thought, well, if we can just get this guy with that person over here, maybe we could get this innovation rolled out faster. So I ran for mayor in 2016, mostly on a dream, right? I didn't know what I was getting into. So before we jump into the mayoral races, I want, I think for people outside of Portland, Portland Mm -hmm. politics is deeply confusing (laughs) because especially I think for Republicans, because they're looking at Portland and they're like, they're all Democrats and they just are fighting constantly and they can't agree. And So I was hoping that like, so at the state level, the framework for understanding state politics is like, you've got Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. And within the two parties, you've got moderates, and then you've got the sort of more progressive on the left or more, you know, conservative or Trumpy on the right. And that's kind of the framework for how we understand decisions and compromises, et cetera. At Portland, there are, I believe, zero Republicans on the Portland City Council, Multnomah County Commission, and I think even the last Republican on Metro is now gone, although I might have that. I don't think there's a Republican on Metro anymore. So what framework do you use to sort of categorize or understand the actors in the environment to help listeners who might not be from Portland and, you know, read the papers and kind of know who they are, but are confused about what the dividing lines are or the issues that separate the actors? Well, and I'm not from Portland, so I'm probably as perplexed as most of your listeners right? I'm a transplant here. And in fact, you know, as much as we talk about the urban-rural divide in Oregon, which is as true here as in any state, um, I mean, that cultural and economic and geographic divide is so real in our nation. I don't think you can take Portland out of Oregon and understand Portland. And that comes as someone who grew up in New York State, which is also a blue state. Hmm. But it, at least when I was there, it was a different kind of blue. Um, And maybe what we have here in Portland is some blue and some green and some other shades along the spectrum. It's not just a blue or red question. 
And I actually got a lot of my understanding from an Our Way conference that was hosted uh, with Portland State and Oregon State and U of O almost a decade ago. And there's a researcher, Brent Steele, who's written about the history of politics here and putting those in context in terms of what's progressive, what's conservative. And in fact, there's a lot of conservation ethos that underlies a lot of the activity here, whether that's environmental, cultural, social, and it has been largely homogenous. We have had a dominant culture that's been largely white over time by design, but also for a very long time. So there's a lot of steadfastness to that that's not necessarily partisan, right? Like there's a shared understanding of protecting the environment, often, at least historically, across political divides. Also a shared bit of that westward expansion, independence in our economics, right? So that libertarian strain that undergirds a lot of what goes on here as well with regard to taxation and finance, I don't think that was necessarily a partisan understanding. It seemed to me like it was more widely shared in that Oregon way or that Oregonian ethos. And then just that healthy commitment to democracy. So when you think about SB 100 and public participation being that number one value in those statewide planning goals and the fact that we value a robust civic engagement here, we demand transparency from our government here. Neither side here really likes uh, corruption in government, we won't accept it, right? So there are a lot of threads that connect Portland, the city in Oregon to our neighbors across the state. It's really the transformation, again, this post-industrial restructuring and urbanization and even cosmopolitanization that I think has been quite an upheaval for Portland as those historically, what I would call more progressive enviros that were dominant in the local scene, maybe back in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, has now come up alongside a lot more progressive, radical social movements. The Black Lives Matter movement is not the first, right? These conversations have been going on in our city for quite some time with regard to justice, migration, the housing crisis that people migrating, not just from the US, but all around the world to our city have created. But then our shared goals and how we navigate the course to them. Things in Portland aren't always contested on the policy side to the extent they are on the candidate side. And that may even be by virtue of us sharing values, but not always sharing a pathway to realize them. So that's how I tend to approach it. And when it comes right down to the nitty gritty, I don't always understand it myself. And as you can see, I lost my election. I only got 41% of the votes. So I didn't understand it well enough to get on top of it. But it does. Yeah, go ahead. Let me let me um, I'll do one. I'm monopolizing. So I will ask this and then Alex ask some of his questions. But so I think of like, you've got Ted Wheeler on one side, and you probably put for most issues, Mingus Maps and Dan Ryan are broadly aligned on that side. And then on the other side, I put you on the in that category of maybe I would I would describe as like the progressive side, and Joanne Hardesty and maybe Chloe Udaly. What actually separates those two groups of people? I mean, you're all Democrats, you all would probably identify as progressive Democrats, if asked, but there are, it's hard to put my finger on precisely what the separation is. Do you have a sense of, first, do you agree with that rough grouping? And B, you know, what separates the two? Well, Fox News just puts us all in one bucket, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so does Alex. <laughs> Alex is like, they're all the same. <laughs> um, I 
would say that at least in my end of the universe, the separation comes from liberalism and neoliberalism is where you would find the Ted Wheelers, the Dan Ryans, and maybe the Mingus Maps. How do you say maps in the plural? <laughs> the maps of the world. Um, in terms of, you know, liberalism, it, it, it's relatively laissez-faire from a regulatory perspective. It's much more ensconced, right? It does policy more in tandem with, say, business. And there are just some features of both liberalism and neoliberalism that I think are more embodied by the politics of Ted Wheeler and people like him. And you'll see that more pervasive, I think, up the chain at the state legislature for the capital D Dems there, right? So, but then when you get on the ground in not just our urban area, but cities around the US and around the world, these further left social movements are really grounded in who's going to have a say over which solutions are implemented and who pays for that. So you think about Occupy Wall Street and the 1% and the 99%, right? You think about there's a tension in neoliberalism of maybe we shouldn't be so tight with government and shaping these urban solutions. Maybe those should come straight from the grassroots and straight from the people in the streets and that there should be a wealth distribution component of that or that there should be more social welfare programs, almost more New Deal-like, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have more cooperative housing and things like that is where I would look at, when you look at you daily, the renter protections, the kind of guardrail she was trying to put around those vulnerable residents is where that really comes from. And the same with Hardesty for police oversight, which is you know, around community-led solutions to our public safety issues. AOC is there, right? It's are these folks that are support a Green New Deal, see us being able to build an economy post-fossil fuels, and just want to work with a little bit greater urgency on that from straight from the streets, as opposed to at this higher echelon of the grass tops and some of the more institutionalized power. That's super helpful analysis. Thank you. Alex, over to you. And Sarah, I do want to ask you one little more of a philosophical question before I ask you about your runs for mayor, because you mentioned it either two or three times now. You've mentioned sort of the change, not just in the country, but also in Oregon, kind of of moving away from heavy industry, industrialization, more towards, you know, sort of the services economy or whatever you want to call it. And I know at least what is sort of, I think in the vein of Trump, but also in the vein of Bernie Sanders, like those sorts of issues really came to face in the 2016 election. I actually think in the 2020 election too, because Joe Biden talks about this sort of thing quite a lot as well. I'm curious from your perspective, because you've mentioned it twice, like what is the sort of political change kind of in like, as the economy has changed, like how have you seen that political change in Oregon? I personally think at least from what it's probably caused is like a lot more partisanship on both sides, kind of as you've seen like job loss, both in heavy industry, you could say the timber industry and other sort of like industries like that. But I'm kind of curious because clearly you've like thought a lot about this. I mean, you mentioned it multiple times of like, how have you seen that kind of shape the politics since you've been here? And maybe how has it shaped your politics as well? That's such a thought provoking question. Um, It's really interesting that I came in kind of on the cusp of Portland's apex, right? As this mid tier city, in urban transformation. I always think about South Waterfront as the perfect illustration for people in their heads where you have this former shipyard deconstructed to 
Harbor, you know, Superfund cleanup site to now a biotech R&D multimodal nexus, right? It's like, it seems a bit of a petri dish for that urban experimentation. So it does sit concretely in my mind. It's not just a philosophical question, but I do think that the politics behind it it's hard to know because I didn't grow up here. So I don't know what it was like here in the eighties. I, I mean, I understand that, you know, there were strong strains of very radical environmentalism, anti-fascism, civil rights, uh, women's rights, LGBTQ rights here for a very long time. I mean, social progressivism, again, with that liberty and freedom for people to be who they want to be here seems like a common thread that runs through it. I think that economics, um, the level of education that comes with these post-industrial workers and affluence, shifting housing prices, I don't think people put enough weight on housing costs and what a community feels and looks like. Um, when I got here, Portland was cheap. It was more expensive than where I left, which in New Orleans, I paid $300 a month for, a, <laughs> you know. A, that sounds amazing. A house in the garden district. <laughs> but, you know, here we got here. And when you have low housing prices in an area, you can have a lot of diversity in that place about people doing a range of things. It seems to me like that foments innovation and creativity. So our music scene up here in the Pacific Northwest is not disconnected from how affordable it was to live up here at that time. You could literally grunge out, right? And make your music and make your art and pay your rent as a barista. Well, you can't pay your rent working as a barista in Portland anymore, right? Even with the rises to minimum wage. So it means we have a professionalization of the people in our society. And those artists, the creatives, the riffraff, they're not quite at the center of the conversation. And when you don't even think about that, the marginalized people and the marginalized voices are moved even further to the margins, quite literally decimating the black community even further in Lower Albina through, say, the revitalization and redevelopment of North Williams, that area, right? So it's about how communities are composed, the diversity of the people there. And I think that affects our social cohesion, because when you have a city where people know how to engage in civic space, like Portland has invested so much in civic space, not just as a factor and feature of urban placemaking, but as a feature of our healthy democracy, Pioneer Courthouse Square is the agora, right? It, it, uh, you know, it's part of where we come together to be Portlanders. When we erode that and who's in it and it becomes more homogenized, I think the conversation's less rich and we, we forget how to get along with people who aren't like us. And we forget that we can just go play together. Because when we talk politics all the time and when we're fighting all the time, we forget that at the end of that, we should probably be sharing a meal right? Cracking some beers. Because when you're down at the brew pub, no one's asking each other, right? Unless you're engaged in a political conversation, you know, who did you vote for this or that? You're just chopping it up and having a good time. Um, the lack of affordability erodes the conviviality. And I think that affects the politics quite significantly, frankly. Yeah, no. And I actually think that's a really good point. And frankly, actually something I think a lot of people are underlooking now when it comes to Biden's approval rating, which is pretty low, is that like, I mean, in some places, like rent is up like 50% from where it was a year ago. And of course, you could blame that on Biden or blame that on whatever, but like people generally are upset about incumbents for the status quo. And like, I just think that's such an underlooked issue, both frankly, on the right and the left of like, yeah, if I was paying $1,000 a year, and now I'm paying 2000 or 1500 or whatever, like that's 
mean, it's what a big hit to my family, but like a big hit to my lifestyle too, in case I have to downsize or move somewhere else or relocate. So no, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. And okay, so transitioning a little more from philosophical to politics. So I know that you, you ran for mayor in 2016. And clearly, you didn't have enough of it because you decided to run again in 2020. And I would say, of course, we know that you, you know, came in second in that race. I think if it was probably you head up against Ted Wheeler, at least from the polls that I've been seeing and some of the people I've spoken to, you may be the mayor of Portland right now instead of Ted Wheeler. Could you just give us kind of a little bit of a recap from both your perspective of the campaign, but also just for maybe the viewers who don't know as much about you, what was kind of like the defining issue? I mean, obviously there's a lot, but like if you could choose one in terms of like, here is like what I see in this moment of, you know, why I decided to run. We're taking me throwbacks now. (laughs) I mean, when it comes right down to it, it really came down to who was going to have a say over the future of Portland, right? Was it going to be this more elite guy, you know, Ivy League educated, uh, financier background, you know, fourth generation or whatever. He has like a generational timeline that he puts for I'm this many generations Oregonian and it's establishment, right? You know, you have this establishment person who represents certain things to certain people for the downtown business class. It represented, you know, certainty and connection and maybe even shared interests. What I was bringing was something different was like, hey, bring Portland back its edge. Like, hey, get Portland this, you know, people's Republic of Portland vibe back. It used to be on T-shirts when I first moved here, right? Like we embraced our radicalism a bit as our brand. And over time, I think, I don't know if it was, um, you know, as a result of or just at the same time as our green city brand growing, we moved away from our riff raffetedness. It's the second time I've used that term, but just us being a little bit more rough around the edges as part of our cachet, that authenticity um, that made us the darling of the New York Times, you know, back in 2010, 2011, and 2012. In my sense, what really spoke to people was that I was willing to say, hey, I had the formula for what made us hip and a desirable then, which was rapid innovation on urban sustainability, you know, a multimodal city, this place that was very urbane and yet connected to nature and had a vibrant civic, you know, realm versus this more, like I would say, standardized, if you will, professional city, which I think Ted Wheeler represents. That's at the core of it. I mean, when it comes to the policy, sometimes there wasn't a lot of um, airspace between us. A good example is residential infill project where I basically bowed out of that conversation because Ted Wheeler was actually going to be a yes vote and do very well on that. So there wasn't a lot of need for me to be in there and undermine that with the politics of the contest, right? So the places where we did have, you know, airspace between us, I focused on those, but there are some places where at least on paper, Wheeler and I would say the same thing, or at least roughly the same thing. And it's just potentially a matter of priority setting or how much money goes toward what are the methods that we would use to get there. And then there's some things that were radically different on. So, and I know this is not the most fun to, I also lost a campaign in 2020. So I know it's not always fun to look back, but 2020 was a challenging campaign for all of the reasons. We actually talked to Jimmy Crumpacker um, last uh, week. Good old Jimmy Crumpacker. What's he doing? Is he running for office again too? He is running for office again. <laughs> um, but we were talking about why 2020 is what like the unique challenges of 2020. And so co- the onset of COVID was one, which for your, I like the division that we talked about earlier, I think on your side is 
much more grassroots, which means more door knocking, more phone calling, like all that. So that gets taken out of the the utility belt, basically. And the other dynamic that I still find fascinating is the racial justice dynamic. This was the summer of racial justice. And there were the, these, and I believe you were at those protests in downtown Quite a Portland. Few, yeah. yeah. So Who knew that I'd be wearing like a, a war zone gear as part of my, we had in our campaign office, we had boxes that were like gas masks and me. I mean, it was just bananas. It was absolutely bananas. So, but what I wanted to ask you about was like, Alex alluded to this, like you came in second, there was a third party candidate named Teresa Rayford, who received a much higher than usual number of write-in votes. And she was an African-American woman and was a leader on some of the racial justice movements, actions, um, et cetera. You are a white person. I believe you identify as that. Ted Wheeler is a white person. And I think no one expected Ted Wheeler to, you know, make a decision about Teresa Rayford's involvement, right? There was never any pressure on him to, you know, reconsider. And I think there was, I was trying to look back and figure out, so what was the dynamic there with the write-in campaign? What role did you, looking back, what role did race play on that 2020 election? And what are the lessons that you took away from that? Obviously, I mean, we talk about intersectionality on the left, right? The idea that these movements interact with each other, our identities interact with each other. So I was just curious if you have any reflections on what was, I know, a really challenging experience and what you gained from it or took from it. Yeah, well, it was a complex time and Portland is still predominantly a white city. And you had a lot of people, uh, thousands and thousands of us showing up for black lives all summer long. And I actually, in retrospect, and have given this quite a bit of thought, as you can imagine, don't chalk up my loss to the writing campaign. Others do, but I made a pretty clear commitment with my campaign team that we were going to steer clear of that because it was completely valid. If there was something that I was missing for those voters then so be it, right? Like that, I didn't agree with it. I thought that my policies on paper actually would result in greater racial justice and other equity outcomes when you looked at our policies side by side. But I think the bigger factor actually was that big push, that half million dollar push from the PBA adjacent super PAC that put a lot of messaging on the street that then muddied the message that I had had to spend, you know, 18 months at the grassroots building, because prior to that, we were about 11 points up in the polls, right in standing. So when you think about name recognition and what you have to do to actually win a race, most of the the average voter doesn't care about any of this stuff. They get a ballot with three names that they may or may not recognize, and they barely know what any of them do. Sometimes (laughs) they ask a friend, sometimes they don't. And it's about name recognition, clarity of messaging, and did I seem trustworthy? and like the person that they wanted to solve their problems. So in retrospect, what could I have done? Could I have possibly been more temperate on my Twitter account? People have asked me about that, right? You know, I've dropped F-bombs from time to time, but those were heated times. I mean, we were getting gassed in the streets and the cops were beating, you know, folks upside the head and you had the feds in town and there was a lot of confusion. There was the pandemic, everybody had masks on. I mean, it was a pretty... Um, intense time on the street. So maybe I could have dialed back even just my language so that, I mean, you can't get quoted on things you don't say, right? So there's a balance there between my self-expression and what it means to be electable. 
Um, I do think, and we don't get to talk about this too much, but I do think there's still a pretty strong strain of misogyny in politics about who's just perceived as a leader, like from the jump. Like if you were to put a picture of Wheeler and a picture of me side by side, I'm guessing based on cognitive bias, a lot of people would just die for that, you know, white male candidate just on instinct or training, you know. So, you know, there are a lot of factors. I just think it was a perfect storm. And maybe they did me a favor. <laughs> right? Maybe the voters of Portland did me a favor. They were looking favor. out for you. <laughs> yeah, because I'm so happy that, you know, I'm working now on issues that are so important and I get to focus you know, on the, especially that transportation and the climate justice aspect of transportation, which we know with the Biden infrastructure bill, um, it's such a opportune moment for people to be working in that sector right now and transforming things on the ground. So who knows, everything happens for a reason, but I'm not sure if that's a satisfactory answer for you or not, but that's just my, my bit of reflection that I've had to give that uh, issue over time. No, I think that's really interesting and helpful. And it, you also transitioned really well to the policy section, which is our next section. But last quick question before we go on to that. Given these two experiences, and I think you probably had a more challenging electoral campaign experience than most first and second time candidates. But would you, are you open to the idea of running for office again? Or are you like, you know what, that I don't want to go through that again? People ask me that a lot. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> especially before whatever little bit of uh, political cachet I have completely dwindles to nothing. But um, <laughs> they, you know, I, it's just a matter, I never aspired to be in elected office to begin with. So none of my personal aspirations have ever been tied to that. Uh, uh, both of my bids were, I think, spurred by a personal aspiration to live my values in the world with whatever privilege and power I could bring to them so that the solutions that I think and know are the best are the ones that get implemented. And whatever tools I have, I would do that. So in 2016, it really was about, you know, thinking about what the conversation would even be, right? And then in 2020, it was like, what are the solutions to these major challenges that Portland's facing? Who's gonna get to say how we work those out? you know, by what mechanisms and with what money was what it was really an interrogation of. I can do that sometimes from in office. Maybe I'll do it from other places. But for me, it's always about getting the power available, whatever I can grasp to put it toward those solutions that I think are the best ones in the time. It's mostly, I, I guess I would say I'm, a, I'm an opportunist on that front, right? I mean, if it's running for office, so be it. But I think there are probably a lot of other ways too that I could do that. Totally. That totally makes sense to me. Okay, so you wrote a piece for the Oregon Way, and it was called, I want to get the title right, it was called From Gridlock to Greatness, How to Move Oregon Forward. It was a very popular piece. We got a bunch of new subscribers from people sharing it. And one excerpt from it that I thought was like the great sort of summary here is we cannot build ourselves out of the congestion hole with freeway expansions. So ODOT needs to put down its shovels and stop digging. Can you summarize for listeners your vision for the future of transportation in Oregon, and then I'll hand to Alex for a follow-up. Sure. I mean, that's my whole job right now. I didn't spend six, six hours prior to this on a meeting about an interstate bridge at Metro for nothing, <laughs> right? It's really this moment that we have where we can look at this 20th century transportation mode 
which we engineered and poured a lot of concrete to create, it doesn't meet the moment. I mean, I was sitting there while my mom lives outside of DC. And so I called her about the gridlock there with the storm, right? Mm -hmm. And you had Tim Kaine like 26 hours in tweeting uh, from I-95. I'm down to my last orange segment or whatever, right? (laughs) And the thing is, is these systems that we have aren't resilient either. I mean, we're we're spewing greenhouse gas pollution into the air. People are stuck in gridlock all over this country, not just Portland. Housing prices in urban centers are pushing people to the fringes of urban areas all around. I just heard a report on Austin being the most expensive rental market in the U.S. this morning. I just saw that report, right? So you think about a Texas uh, form of this, right? And I just go back to that again, those 19... 60s and 70s enviros here who thought, well, we actually do need urban growth boundaries around our urban centers to constrain sprawl and create compact centers so people don't have to drive as much. It's literally the law of Oregon, right? And it's the law of Oregon that we need to make sure that we're integrating land use and transportation planning to keep people compact so that we don't sprawl into our precious farm and forest land. It's the law. And the fact that all of our transportation investments need to realize that uh, the 1991, uh, I think it's the TSP, I always get all the transportation acronyms mixed up, but that transportation planning rule was basically that all transportation investments should be subordinate to that aim, right? So that we are going to build transportation infrastructure to realize those spatial planning goals. That's our mandate. And so you've got a government like Metro where they should be the watchdogs of this constantly integrating land use and transportation planning. So people have compact walkable neighborhoods connected by transit. We should be thinking about things like inner city transit. My daughter was so bummed to lose the Bolt bus because she doesn't have that efficient way back and forth from Eugene to Portland anymore, right? We think about things like safe routes to school and every trip. I hate seeing cars like lined up outside the front of a school, picking kids up and dropping them off from school. Each one of those is a trip we could save if we had those kids safe routes to schools and those schools where they lived were high quality, right? So there's so many systemic ways that we can reduce people's dependence on the privately owned automobile that are safer, healthier, more joyful in my experience. I have an e-bike now and I rip around this city on that (laughs) bike and I have the time of my life. But people have all different kinds of things that they like to do. And so if we can make it so that they have that option of living where they want, that we have good jobs so that people don't have to go too far to get the employment that they need and want. And then they have the mobility tools to move them between those. Like we have a nice life, right? That is a good way of life. And then for our rural Oregonians, that should not come at their expense, right? They should have what they need where they live. But I focus on urban areas because I know I can fit, you know, 60, 70, 80 people on a TriMet bus because I have that demand here and you may not have that in a rural area. So let's focus on cities where we have those compact human settlement patterns where more people changing their behavior more quickly can actually help us reduce our GHG emissions faster. So I want to, I guess, maybe not even push back is the right word, but so a guy who runs a podcast who is a friend of ours, James Ball, uh, they're the Rational Republicans. He's actually running for Metro right now. And on, I forgot if this was his podcast or it was, his. On a different, it was his podcast. And 
uh, his basic pushback was, and his sort of vision is sort of this. He says, in my Republican future, everybody has their own electric vehicle. It's autonomous. We can get places quicker. It's very convenient because, of course, I'm an autonomous vehicle. I can read, I can write, I can do work or whatever when I'm in the car. And that's like my vision of how I want a green future to work. And he basically says, and I mean, that sounds much more appealing, at least to me, than the sort of mass transport option. When I used well, to live and, in D.C. And important oh, sorry, to ahead. note, he he's running in the suburbs, which I think that's a very suburban message, right? Like everybody gets their own car, et cetera. And the other piece of his argument is he cites, and I'm sure you've got good data on this, Sarah, but he cites l- relatively low participation rates, even in best case scenarios on public transit, I think in like the 10 to 15% or something like that. But yeah, sorry for interrupting, Alex. I just want to add that. Yeah, and I mean, I used to take the metro in DC and it was great. It was an easy way to get around. It was really well built. I've just never really had that same feeling about the max downtown. And like, I've known people who they just don't necessarily feel safe on it. That's obviously kind of a different issue than like the idea behind it. But kind of curious of like your response towards that vision or like, do you kind of see some of that fitting into your future vision for transportation too? Or like, do you really think that no mass transportation is the way to go? Well, I don't just think in terms of mass transportation. So that I think that's something to clarify. When I'm talking about a complete multimodal system, a high quality public transit is only one part of that. It's a hugely complex system right now. Just a couple of things, a pushback on, on your friend with the podcast. And I actually should probably go on and talk with him because it sounds like it'd be fun. But, um, you know, there's a bit of technological determinism underlying this technology will save us by autonomous yes. vehicles and EVs. If you look at I-5 right now, and I used to have my campaign office had a window, right? I was down in Produce Row and I could look right out over I-5 congestion. Whether that's an internal combustion engine or an electric engine, that's still those vehicles on that road stuck in that roadway, right? So we actually have to reduce vehicle miles traveled in part because when you think about the principle of induced demand, which is if we widen Uh, the road capacity, expand the road capacity so that more vehicles can fit on it, you're actually just going to induce more demand. You're going to induce more people to drive and you will always end up with congestion if people are left to the drive alone trip. So I've I've heard that a lot. And I, I guess I agree with that in some cases and by no means am I a transportation expert, but like, what if they just built five new lanes? I mean, one, I think that would be a great major infrastructure project. It would create a lot of new jobs. And two, I mean, there's not that many people in Oregon anyway. Like, I, I guess I've just heard that argument and I guess I'm more sympathetic to it in cities like Austin or maybe like San Francisco. But I just feel like there's one, not that many people here. And like, even if you did, you just built so many lanes, it's not like there'd be so many cars to fill the road. Are you talking about the induced demand argument, Titus? Yes, in terms of like the more, that's kind of like the pushback in terms of like, oh, well, you build more lanes, but then like more people would just go on the road. But like, is there a way basically you could either like set things up in terms of the highway or just build so many lanes that like you basically see the returns there without seeing so many new people. That sounds so dystopian to me, but sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, I wish induced demand wasn't proven by science, but it actually is. I mean, I can't undo that. We know that that's what happens when you expand the roadway capacity. Joe Courtright uses a good illustration of free cone day at Ben and Jerry's. Right. Have you ever shown up outside of Ben and Jerry's on free cone day and the line line goes around the block? That's induced demand. They've made the cones free and everybody shows up. I mean, that's a very basic illustration, but of induced demand is just induced demand. You're inducing it by creating uh, the capacity to carry it. 
Well, there's also- It might solve your problem for a year or two, but then you're going to be back in the same boat with more cars that you need to manage and another lane and another lane and another lane. We have a lot better tools to manage congestion. London's done a fantastic job with accurately, more accurately pricing the right-of-way through road user charges and coordinating dynamic parking pricing. We can look at it through a much more uh, traditional economic lens of supply and demand about who gets to use it when and at what price to actually even mitigate over demand of that system at peak times as well. And my dog completely agrees with me on congestion. <laughs> <laughs> He's out so, there barking for congestion pricing right now. So, and my additional aspect is like, I think Titus, to your point, like you theoretically could do that, but when you think about like the places with the worst traffic, at least for me, when I'm coming in, there's no place to go. Like you couldn't build out five lanes without massive disruption to either the environment or existing buildings, housing, et cetera. So I think, so what I want to ask about is like picking up, I obviously live in Tigard, so I am sympathetic to the suburban perspective or at least understand it a bit more. And I think part of that, what James is appealing to is the sense of like, I don't want to give up my life with a car is what the consumer would say. I need to be able to take my dog to the vet if there's an emergency or um, drop my kids off at sports practice or it's such, you know, whatever the issue is, I need to have the ability to have at least one car for my household. And the idea of an electric car sounds great because I don't have to pay for gas. I can feel better about myself in terms of environmental impact. Where do electric vehicles, which what the other thing James says, which I think is interesting is there's not enough money to build an adequate infrastructure for both a region that is prepared for electric vehicles across the region and mass transportation that's effective across the region. So he kind of put these at odds, which it sounds like you would push back on and say it doesn't have to be true. But how do electric vehicles fit into your vision and what could be possible for Oregon? So, you know, it's not an either or. I just don't know that we can, you're right where it sounds a little bit high in the sky that we could transform our entire SOV fleet to EV with the requisite urgency that we need to meet our GHG pollution emissions. And on top of that, you know, cars pollute and freeway building is also carbon intensive just in the infrastructure, right? When you look, I mean, we have to look at these systems in their entirety. And I also think, again, I have moved my entire organization away toward, say, uh, being dogmatic about a particular mode. Oh my goodness, I don't know why that's going to go. Being dogmatic about a particular mode to saying, I realize that there are going to be certain people who cannot not drive. They don't have the option. The transit TriMet doesn't go by where they live. Maybe they work across town. I'm not trying to say to those folks, you've got to get out of your car. I think that's something that we've done wrong in our movement historically. So here's the thing. You know, what we need to do is say we need to transform the transportation system holistically. And that's where I don't disentangle that from land use and housing, right? Or jobs or education. If you've ever been to say even Korea, where they have high speed rail inner city, they have amazing regional rail, they have amazing regional bus, and then they have amazing local bus, and then they have bike share and scooter share at the local level, plus pretty walkable neighborhoods, especially even in their more rural places, the towns are denser, like in that little town, think about the farm town with the Grange and the bank and whatever, That's there's a high speed rail stop at that. Right. So I can move around the entire, you know, 40 million person nation of Korea without ever having to drive a car. 
I mean, it's quite possible even for a rural, a rural farmer, essentially. I mean, quite frankly, you could do that. Hmm. So you can rethink your system toward what you value. It's just, we created a system designed around the automobile. We had Detroit is a, is a brand, right? Yeah, I mean, these lead industrialists were manufacturing, selling cars. It's part of our culture. I mean, you can't tune into an afternoon of sports and not see automobile advertisements and whatever. It's part of our identity as Americans. I mean, weaning us off that toward a different way is going to be a huge cultural shift. There are huge spatial shifts. The infrastructure investments that we need to make have to be holistic and integrated, right? Again, this notion that we should have compact neighborhoods that have everything you need because I'm live car free and it can actually be challenging to live like that. I'll tell you, it's the middle of winter here in my yeah. neighborhood. I have to keep thinking, it's like playing chess, not checkers, because I have to sometimes think days in advance if I'm going to have to get out to say Gresham for a doctor's appointment because I'm going to have to plan my trip. But also I even think about that when I move. I have to make sure I live somewhere that's close to transit where I generally choose to have a supermarket with walking within walking distance so I can go grab groceries. You know, I have to think about these things and I have privilege, uh, you know, education and resources. What we want to do is get those amenities to as many people as possible so that extra trip, you know, if I just need, you know, cereal, milk and bread, can I walk there? Because a lot of people actually like that. Kids like that. When I was a kid, I did that. So this isn't about saying don't drive. It's about where you live in Tigard. I mean, could we even have your neighborhood a little bit more compact? So you could even do a few. Can you walk to your community center? So you don't have to drive to 24-hour fitness. I mean, can you walk to your pub at night? So you know, I hate that bars have parking lots. I just think it's antithetical to what we're trying to do with like DUI, right? Yeah, so, talk about induced demand. <laughs> exactly. So why don't, I mean, a pub in every neighborhood is something every Oregonian should get behind. So mm -hmm. that kind of thing, I mean, it's just very incremental, but it's intentional. But what you value, you know, is what you're going to get. And so you just really have to say, we're going to have a system that's low carbon. It's accessible. People aren't dying because of it. And no matter where you live or your skin color or your gender, you feel safe using it, right? Because as you said, Alex, your friends don't feel safe on Max. And that's something that I hear a lot is that unless it feels safe for everybody, we don't want to use it. Yeah, no, those are those are interesting points. And then Sarah, and thank you so much again for joining us. Uh, we have one more, I guess, two more questions. One of them is quick before we let you go. Mine will be the little bit of a longer one. I just kind of wanted to ask you, it's a really general question of, are you optimistic or pessimistic when it comes to the future of Portland? And I personally think there's a little bit of things to be optimistic for, and there's definitely things to be pessimistic for as well. But obviously, as someone who's run for mayor, really involved in the community, like, I'm actually, you know, I, I don't know, I'm just really curious at that. Like, do you, what do you sort of see for like, in terms of when it comes to the future of Portland? I'm tactical. And I say that in all seriousness, that I'm a tactical optimist. I believe that the power to transform the future is in our hands. Do I think Portland would be on a better trajectory if I were mayor? Yeah. Even if only because I could repair our brand, I'd be out, you know, chopping it up a little bit more organically, you know, with my neighbors around the world. Doing I mean, some weird stuff. <laughs> no, I'd be, I'd be connecting with our colleagues, you know, in our, there's like creative cities all around this globe. We should be networking. And I just have a different style. 
right? So I would just be approaching, I'd be doing things like pop-ups and walking tours. I'd be investing in like a lot of stuff that was more creative and not necessarily commercial because that stuff tends to spur the commercial activity in my experience from Portland. So I would be taking a different approach to our revitalization in the short term. And I also tend to partner a little bit more, like I'd be down deep in with all the universities and some of the, you know, the healthcare institutions and things like that, trying to figure out ways we could collaborate just to juice things up where everybody is. Cause it's hard times out there for real. So sure, you know, but that's a super short term answer. Long-term, this notion of tactical optimism is what I lean into no matter what, because these are wild times that we're living in and uncertainty is going to be the prevailing mode indefinitely. It doesn't matter, it can be a pandemic, climate change, global financial crises, a social upheavals and reckonings. I mean, whatever it is, it's not gonna stop. We're leaning into chaos, we're trending toward it, it's not going anywhere. So what we need at this moment is people who are dynamic thinkers, who know how to pull a group of brilliant people together and come up with a solution in real time, do the requisite research to see if it has legs and then deploy it and be willing to exit if it doesn't. It's a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset, but dynamic leadership right now is about people staying upbeat that something different is possible. And I do think that we're going to need diverse thinkers in that. I do think that we're going to need the social justice folks and the educational folks and the investors and the startup-minded people to bring all of their different talents together. We forget that about Portland, right? We've got our researchers and our university people and the folks right down at the grassroots who are organizing in the streets. And we always need to be bringing folks together and trying to get more problems out in real time and not being afraid of failure. Because if we take this old model of public policy where everything has to have this longitudinal process, I think that things are going to get worse before they get better. But tactical optimism means that we all lean into whatever premise of a better future you hang on to, and you just work toward that. And when we are doing that, regardless if we actually believe that it's going to turn out better, just us putting our energy behind the better future, it's more likely to happen than the worst case scenario, right? So I'm very tactical about it. Um, and I go back and forth day to day. I mean, I know my whole team right now has got a lot of COVID fatigue and they go back and forth between despair and hope. And we just try to circle back uh, day in and day out with our wins. I mean, we are getting significant wins even with every big L uh, we take, including Rip City. Oh my goodness, those poor blazers. But, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you just got to hope for the next season is going to be better when things are really, really down. Hope springs eternal. To be fair, they've been, they've been saying that a long time for the Blazers. So uh, I, I don't know if that was the best comparison, but. <laughs> well, so Sarah, thank you again for making time. I know we're a little over here and we veered from philosophy to policy to politics. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Our final question is, if a listener is interested in the work you're doing or wants to learn more about your vision or be involved in the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to be in touch or to learn more? Great. And thanks for having me, guys. I'm sorry I don't do small talk. I always get right into it. No, no, no. It was awesome. (laughs) I'm at thestreettrust.org. You can follow us on all the social medias or go to our website. They're all there. But I just hope everybody has a safe and healthy uh, 2022. That's the most important thing. Stay connected to each other and keep each other safe out there because we got a long road ahead of us, even on the other side of this pandemic. we got a lot of work to do. So thanks for being in it. I appreciate you. Awesome. Very well said. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. And uh, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye.